All right, this morning, um, we're going we're gonna to spend a little time with this flood story, and, and I, I want to point out a, a couple of things that I think are um, unusual but help us get what's going on in this story, uh, and then I want to talk about how uh, this story connects to Jesus' parable. So, um, the, the first thing I, I hope you noticed is, um, where does the water come from? You notice um, we, we, it rains, right? It rains 40 days and 40 nights. Um, but we're told the, the water comes from a very particular place. If you've got your Bible and want to look at chapter 7, uh, verse 11, we're told on that day, the middle of the verse, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. That's a really weird description of where water comes from. Um, so, I, I know that I've become this obnoxious Hebrew snob person, um, but we've got to talk about the word flood, which in Hebrew is mabul. Everybody say mabul. Sounds like maboy, mabul. Um, mabul is a word that's only used 13 times in the Bible, 12 of them in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. The only time it's used in the Bible outside of this story in Genesis is in our call to worship in Psalm 29. Our call to worship says, the Lord is enthroned over the mabul, over the flood. So, um, I, I think it's helpful to understand that the mabul is not just water. It's this like cosmic heavenly water. And to make sense of that, it's helpful to understand how the ancient people in Moses' day, Moses being the author, thought about the world, okay? So, I've shown you this graphic before, but I'm going to show you a picture of how they imagined the world to be. Will you give me that first one? Um, and there's a lot of writing, actually. Go to the next one. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. So, I, I know you can't read the words probably from where you're sitting, um, but let me just explain um, how the ancient people imagined the world to be. So, at the bottom of our little circle here, um, there's all this water, and it's called the Great Deep. Uh, and then above that, we see these pillars coming into the water, and then eventually there's like dry ground that pokes out the top, okay? And then we have the sky, um, also known as the heavens, same word in Hebrew. Um, and this is where the clouds are and the birds fly. It's also where the stars and the moon and the sun are. All of that space they think of as the heavens, the shamayim, the sky. And then there's this weird black bar. You see that black bar that runs across? Um, that's called the firmament, and, and we'll get there in a minute. And then above the firmament, there's more water, okay? Uh, and, and that water above the firmament is called the mabul, and then we have God above it all, right? Uh, leave that up for just a minute. So, this is why this matters. In, in the beginning of Genesis, the first chapter, when God makes the heavens and the earth, right? He makes the, the sky and the earth, the shemaim and the aretz. When God makes the heavens and the earth, uh, it begins, everything is just water everywhere, right? And, and God makes light. There's light and darkness. The next day, it says God separates the waters from the waters, and He makes the firmament. He makes that black bar there to separate the waters above from the waters below. That's day two. And then day three, it says God gathers together the waters below the firmament in one place so that dry land can come up. That's day three. Okay? So, the Hebrews imagine the world like this, where there's water below the great deep, and there's water above the sky, um, and then in between is the sky and the dry land. 
So, in verse 11, when we're told, on that day, the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, we're being told that the water from below, that great deep, is coming up, and the water from above, the mabul, the water above the firmament, is coming down, right, through the windows in the sky. Um, and it, this is an uncreation moment, okay? It's not just a flood. It's not just that there's water coming down the earth and everything's dying. God is uncreating the world. Uh, this is hugely important because when we get to the next chapter, we're going to see God creates the world in a whole, um, a, a similar but a new way, and you'll see all kinds of great parallels in Genesis 1 and Genesis 8 next week. Um, but right now, you're supposed to understand this is an uncreation. God's unmaking the world. And as He does so, this massive torrent of cosmic waters covers everything from valleys to tops of mountains. And in this um, I mean, it's bigger than a flood, right? In this mabool, um, there's just one thing that's surviving, and it's this tiny little ark, right? This tiny little place where Noah and his family and all these animals are located together. Uh, okay, you can, you can take that away. Uh, you, you're supposed to be wondering as you read this story, oh my goodness, how in the world can this little ark survive, right? Uh, what if it springs a leak? <laughs> what if it capsizes? What if the waters above don't just erase the dry land? What if we go all the way back to creation when there's not even any sky anymore? This little thing is so small and vulnerable and fragile. How could something so small possibly even survive, much less matter in the grand scheme of the cosmic story. And here I think we get another pattern, another fundamental question that's going to come up again and again and again throughout the story of Scripture. Tim Mackey says it like this, when we see this little remnant floating on the waters, it's the seed image of the righteous being rescued because of God's covenant love. And that pattern will continue to play and replay. Uh, in, in this story, in the midst of uncreation, God will protect and partner with this one little family to preserve all life on earth. But this idea that God works with the remnant, with um, these tiny little groups, with these groups that are almost, almost seed-sized to to impact and save and recreate and change the world is a fundamental message in Scripture. You're, you're going to see it after Noah again and again and again. You're going to see that when God begins His plan of salvation, He doesn't do it with an empire or a king. He picks two people. One of them is not a great guy, and one of them is a woman who's barren. And He's going to say, from you, I'm going to make a family to change the world. And when that family grows, God's going to go and pick um, not the greatest empire in the world, but the slaves in that empire who are descendants of that family to say, hey, from these slaves, I'm going to change and save the world. Uh, and then a little bit later, they're going to be at Mount Sinai. They're going to get the Ten Commandments, and you're going to see all these miracles and amazing things. Uh, and then Moses is going to take like a 40-day break, and they're going to give up on him and start worshiping a golden calf. And one-twelfth 
One out of 12 clans, one twelfth of the people are going to stay faithful to God. And from that one twelfth come all the priests and all the people that are going to intercede for God's people for the next 1,500 years. And again and again and again, God chooses these little remnants, these little groups to say, hey, um, I'm going to do something extraordinary through the smallest group possible. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed, I think He's talking about Noah and the ark. I think He's talking about this idea that um, God will protect and partner this little group of disciples, this little new family called the church, to save all life on earth, just like He partnered with one family to preserve all life through that process of uncreation and new creation. Uh, and this idea of, of maybe we call it remnant theology or seed theology is so incredibly important for us throughout Scripture, but it's also kind of become conventional wisdom. Uh, we, we have people outside the Bible that are teaching this in really great ways. Um, uh, I have a quote I give you intentionally all the time from Margaret Mead. Um, I'm going to give it to you uh, in video form today. Um, this is a scene from the West Wing where, um, I'm, I've probably seen this scene before, where one of the characters is being given a, a position by the President of the United States. Oh, but we're going to need the sound. Can we… Never doubt. That Can we go back and do that again? I don't know what to say. That's what I don't know what to say. Perfect. That's what you want to hear from your new communications deputy? There's a promise that I ask everyone who works here to make. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful and committed citizens can change the world. Do you know why? It's the only thing that ever has. William Bailey, proposing special trust and confidence in your integrity, prudence, and ability, I designate you to the post of Deputy White House, Director of Communications, and Special Assistant to the President. And I do authorize you to execute and fulfill. I love this idea um, that the president makes him promise to believe that he should never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world because it's the only thing that ever has. Um, I want to challenge that slightly. I want to say um, it's not about what a small group of committed people can do. It's about what a small group of people can do with, when partnering with Yahweh, when partnering with God. And this is the beautiful part of this story, the story of Noah and the story that Jesus is going to um, lead us into in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's about partnering with God um, in, in really little ways and leaving other things up to Him. So you, you notice, um, this is an interesting passage. We talked about the, the pairs of animals, the seven clean, the, the, the one pair of unclean animals that come. Um, and you notice that we're told in verse 5, again, Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. Noah's job is to do the stuff God says. Um, but you notice what the time frame is for getting the animals into the ark? It was seven days. Okay, now let's, let's backtrack for a minute. Noah's 600 years old. This is a lot of work for a 600-year-old guy to do in one week. Right? Are we supposed to think that Noah travels the whole world and gets two of every animal except for seven of all the clean animals? No, who's doing that? God's doing that. 
Um, who's going to make the flood come? Who's going to open the great deep and the windows of the heavens? Who's going to end the rain? Who's going to let the waters recede and recreate the earth? Um, who's going to shut the door of the ark? God does all of that stuff, right? Noah's only job is just to do what God commanded him to do. And, and you have to imagine, um, even just letting the animals in is a little stressful, right? I mean, God's doing the lion's share of the work, but, um, you know, when the animals show up and, and you're wondering, are they going to eat all the food? Are they going to eat each other? I mean, the lions show up, are they going to eat me? Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a little stressful, um, but, but God just says, hey, this is what I want you to do. This is your job. This is my job. Uh, in my family right now, um, uh, I think probably because of my oldest son, chess has become the game du jour. And so we are playing a lot of chess. Um, my seven-year-old plays chess. My 11-year-old plays chess. Um, my 13-year-old plays chess. Um, and, and I play chess badly. Um, and, and I am um, consistently, it's a common thing right now, I'm, I'm I'm playing with the kids or I'm playing online, and um, they'll be in another room, and I'll start yelling, oh, I can't believe it, because I'm really bad at chess. Here's why I'm bad at chess. Um, I can't keep my eye on all the pieces, right? There's so, it's so complicated. There's so many things to move that I'll think this is going to be great, and then I'll just get hammered. Um, and I get tunnel visioned, and I get impatient, and I can't see the whole board, and I I just can't remember where all the pieces are and where all the pieces need to go. And here's the good news. Life isn't like chess. What a relief. <laughs> life isn't like chess. Um, I don't need to know all the answers in my life. I don't need to know what will happen after I'm obedient to God. Partnering with God is not like playing chess. All I do is I make my move and I leave everything else up to Him. God says, uh, don't sleep with your girlfriend. Uh, and I don't need to know if drawing that line will end my relationship with my girlfriend or not. I don't need to know if it'll um, lead us to getting married down the road or breaking up in a few weeks. I just need to do what God tells me. The rest of it isn't my job. Uh, we're talking about stewardship this morning. Um, God says, be generous. Uh, I don't have to know what's going to happen after I'm generous. God doesn't say, be generous, and then I'll give you more money than you used to have. That would be really nice if He did, right? Um, no, He just says, be generous. And then what happens next is up to Him to be in charge of that. I don't have to know that. Uh, there, I believe firmly there's something in your life today that God's calling you to partner with Him on. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a decision. I don't know what it is, um, but God's calling you to be obedient, and you're saying, uh, yeah, I would, but I, I just need to do the next step. God, if you just tell me what comes after I'm obedient, then I'll be all over it. And God wants you to know that's not how this works. In this partnership, you just do what He says, and then you trust Him to take care of everything else. This idea of, of God partnering with the smallest of people uh, and the smallest of communities to work salvation, um, to work new creation, is the story of Scripture. It's the story of the New Testament. And when, as a matter of historical fact, the kingdom of God is a mustard seed, right? Uh, the, the kingdom of God started out as like 12 guys and a bunch of women and this one rabbi who got killed. 
um, in the midst of the greatest empire of all time. And today that empire is gone, and those 12 guys and those women um, are now billions of people. Uh, Every time um, the kingdom of God has been planted somewhere like a mustard seed, it has sprung up, Um, whether that was in the uh, Roman Empire or whether that's in um, Africa and Latin America today in our lifetime, whether that's in China today. Um, I I read an article this week that said um, Protestant Christianity is growing so fast in China, there are some folks, uh, it's hard to know because many of the places where it's growing, it's illegal. There are some folks that think um, I think there's 92 million members in the, uh, in the Communist Party in China. There's some folks who think there are now more Christians than communists in China, right? Because it's just exploding. It's a mustard seed growing into the largest plant. But I think um, when Jesus talks about um, this parable of the mustard seed, um, when we get this story of the ark, um, I think Jesus is also thinking of another mustard seed. We read it today in our call to confession, the idea of, of faith as a mustard seed. And I wonder if just as the ark is a physical seed from which all life will spring up, just as the church is a spiritual seed from which all eternal life will spring up, so perhaps in us the smallest amount of faith, the smallest amount of trust in God is the beginning from which a life with God will spring up. And I think Jesus is saying, uh, I just need a mustard seed-sized group of people who have just mustard seed-sized faith to change the world, to make a new creation, to make all things new. I was going to bring, as an illustration today, a mustard seed so I could hold up for you and show it, Um, but they're so daggum small you wouldn't be able to see it, okay? Um, so instead of bringing a mustard seed, I brought a, a big white cabinet. Um, and some of you know what this cabinet is, but if you don't, um, the story of our church is the story of a mustard seed that grew into a plant. Um, so when our church began about 39 years ago, um, we were meeting in St. Mark's here in town in their basement. There were 12 to 15 members who met on a regular basis, and um, that church began because there was a belief that God was calling us to start something new, that God was calling us to be um, the beginning, the seed, the ark of uh, a new faith community right here in our home. And when we met in St. Mark's for several years, um, we didn't obviously own the building of St. Mark's. Um, We didn't own the chairs. We didn't own anything except for this one white cabinet, this exact white cabinet, in fact, and everything that the church owned was in there, right? And so, for the beginning years of our church, we called this our church, and we would say, please roll out the church, right, and let's get the Bibles out of it and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that was the seed for this, right? And, and maybe more importantly, because neither cabinets nor buildings are churches, those 12 to 15 people were the seed for you and for the last 35 years of you. Some of you were part of that seed, and some of you uh, are uh, the plant that has grown. Um, But I love this idea uh, that that's all God wants in your family, in your school, in your work. All God wants is to partner with you 
And all He needs you to be is just that seed. It can be as small as a cabinet, right? Uh, And from that, God can bring incredible things. Um, We are in this season uh, of stewardship, we we have a a slogan we've been using called Humble Beginnings, Bright Future. Uh, And it's this reminder that we started out with very little, um, and God has blessed us and given us all that we have now. Um, But I, I keep coming back to that because I keep asking myself, are we at this point in our story as a family of faith, are we in the bright future or are we still in the humble beginnings? Uh, are you right now the plant that God has grown, or are you still a seed that might grow more? Uh, and I, I, I keep coming back to this idea, can't we be both? Can't we be a, a people who God has already planted faith in and a community that God has already planted in this space that have already grown, that have already been blessed, but that we're, we're not done that there's still in us that seed, that potential of incredible growth, incredible growth in faith and love and compassion and mercy and missions to our community and outreach to those who don't know God if, if we're just willing to just partner, just have that mustard seed sized faith. Uh, maybe um, this is both a humble beginning and a bright future for us. Uh, Maybe when the world is literally coming apart, God wants to partner with you to put it back together again. Maybe you're the ark. Maybe you're that mustard seed. And all it takes is this much faith. Thanks be to Him. Amen.